Turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where we are going to be looking together tonight at a very well-known and very often quoted passage looking at verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. And while you're making your way there this evening, allow me to just mention to you that one of the truly difficult truths of Christianity for anyone to come to grips with, and indeed it's a truth that many stumble at, is the questions that surround the suffering and ultimately the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that considering something like the suffering of Jesus in the Christian life really is an intensely practical practice. And I would tell you it's also an extremely necessary practice as well. We all need to do it in the Christian life. And it's certainly a question that must be answered if we are ever to live in the peace and the comfort that truly is ours through the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And tonight, it's my hope to lead us into finding the answer to that question. I believe that we are all knowledgeable about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished according to the revelation of the word of God. We are all familiar, of course, with the facts that surround Jesus Christ. For example, we know that he came in the flesh In other words, we know and we believe that God was incarnated, that he came in the flesh. We are also aware that he condescended, that is, he laid aside the glory that was his as the second person of the glorious Godhead, and he came down to this world to walk among us as a man. We know that he came, we know that he lived perfectly in the eyes of the law of God. We know that he was sinless, blameless in the eyes of the holy law of Almighty God. He was and he is perfect, both in his inward as well as his outward conduct. Jesus Christ was entirely sinless. We know that he willingly then walked into the arms of the earthly authorities, knowing exactly what would become of him for doing so. Knowing that he would be sentenced to scourging and to inexplicable suffering and torture that would eventually lead to his struggling through his last breath as he died hanging upon a rough, crude cross. An instrument designed specifically for bringing about a very painful, very agonizing, even humiliating death. We know that that suffering was, of course, only the final consummation of what had really been a lifetime of suffering leading up to that point, to the point of his actual death on the cross. And of course, beloved, by the grace of God, we know that death could not hold him. That he, in fact, arose from the dead on the third day. 
that he appeared in the flesh to many. We know that he did not stay here in his resurrected body, but in fact, in front of the eyes of his disciples, in front of the eyes of many, many witnesses, he was taken up in a cloud to heaven. We are told in sacred scripture that he is even now in session at the right hand of the Father, acting as our advocate, actively working on our behalf, sanctifying our works and our prayers, acting as our mediator. Beloved, we know these things. We talk about these things on a regular basis. And please understand that I do not want you to think for a moment that I am taking the gospel for granted when I say that we know these things. I assure you I am not. As a minister of the, of the gospel, I hope never to make such an egregious error in judgment as to think that we could ever just sort of move on from the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot. It is at the very center of all of our lives spent on this side of the glory and the majesty of heaven. It's the very source of peace and rest and joy for the people of God. It's the source of our strength. And it should never be assumed. It should never be relegated to that place in our lives where we simply move on to other things. When I say, though, that we know these things, I'm saying that these truths are not new to us. In fact, regardless of what you may believe personally, we as a congregation confess these very truths every single Lord's Day morning during our corporate worship together. Whether it be through the Apostles' Creed or through the Nicene Creed, or even echoed as we read responsively from the Catechism, we confess these truths to be true every single week. And tonight, I want to focus in on this particular truth of the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I hope to open up to you exactly why it is that we also desperately need to consider it. Why is the hero of our faith subjected to such unthinkable suffering at the hands of mere men? Why did Jesus Christ have to come and suffer and die? So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to follow along with me as I read this evening from the Holy Word of God, Isaiah chapter 53, again reading verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of our Lord. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful to come to your word this evening. We ask, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many, many things that distract us in this life. We pray that we would give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing it and knowing it through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We know that Jesus did indeed live a life that was filled with suffering while he lived on this fallen earth that we inhabit. We see reference to it repeatedly in the word of God. It's even evident in the names that we so often see associated with him. Jesus has called things like the suffering servant, or as in the text before us this evening, a man of sorrows. His suffering is revealed in some of the messianic psalms, like Psalm 22, which we have already read from this evening, where the psalmist speaking for the Messiah says in verses 14 and 15, I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And of course we get a glimpse of the agonizing suffering of our Savior as He wept before the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane where we are told that as He cried out, He sweat as it were great drops of blood in his agony. To the degree that we are able, we understand that Jesus Christ suffered. But beloved, I would make the argument this evening that we only just barely understand. Our understanding is, of course, limited to our own experience in suffering. And any suffering that you and I have experienced in our lives would, of course, pale drastically when compared to the suffering of Jesus Christ. We have all experienced physical pain to some degree or another. But the worst physical pain that we can conceive of would pale in comparison to the physical anguish that Jesus was called to endure, and that he did endure. You can imagine being beaten without mercy. Having his beard ripped out from the flesh of his cheeks. Having his back torn open by the cruel scourges of Rome. Even being made to carry his own heavy cross 
to the place of his execution. As his weary, beaten body screamed for relief. Having his hands and feet nailed to that very cross. Sending searing pain through his tired limbs with every cruel ring of the hammer. Only then having to endure the pain of having the entire weight of his body supported by those sore holes that were bore into his flesh by the nails. And of course, that's just the physical anguish, which was nothing compared to the mental anguish of having poured out upon him the very wrath of Almighty God. The truth is, the cross speaks of unimaginable suffering. And we know that Jesus lived a lifetime of suffering. Scripture makes it clear that the worst that we can conceive of in our own experience is nothing compared to what Jesus was called to endure. But why was it necessary? Why was it necessary that this kind of suffering had to happen to the Son of God? Have you ever asked that question? Or maybe a question like it. Why, if he was truly innocent of any sin, would he ever have to suffer this kind of turmoil? This kind of mind-numbing pain and agony? Why a lifetime of suffering for God in the flesh? Well, beloved, the answer to that question is covered by Isaiah the prophet here in the text that's before us this evening, and it's covered in a way that is both at the same time heart-wrenching and yet also the very source of joy overflowing for the true child of God. Isaiah here in the beginning of this 53rd chapter of this book containing his prophecy sort of pauses and he stands in awe of Almighty God's amazing plan of salvation both lamenting the dullness of our sinful hearts and perceiving it, and yet rejoicing at the amazing grace of God that will be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he opens with this pause here to consider the dullness of our own supposedly keen minds. He asks the question, who could believe our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The word of God very clearly states that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And we see here Isaiah the prophet considering the message of the gospel and wondering at how anyone will ever believe it. It runs directly contrary to human nature, doesn't it? This is a picture of a Messiah that no one will anticipate or even desire apart from the grace of Almighty God. This is not the portrait of a hero that we are so accustomed to. It's not a picture of God, the warrior king, coming in with his flaming sword and absolutely destroying those who would dare to not bow the knee to him. It's not a picture of God coming in thunder and lightning and power and might to to crush his enemies underfoot to establish 
the visible manifestation of his strength to establish a physical kingdom that the world would stand in awe and fear of. This is certainly not what we would call a military-style deliverance. Yet the power, though veiled, is unthinkable. And it is unparalleled in the history of Israel or the entire world for that matter. Isaiah considers here the entrance of this Messiah, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and he says he will grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And beloved, we we have to get this picture in our minds. It's one of parched desert ground, hard and cracked because of long exposure to the heat and the wind and the intense light of the sun. It's dry, scorched ground, and yet amid this desperate ground, this dry, arid ground, there grows a tender shoot. A twig, actually, as the Hebrew reads, a stick growing out of the ground. And I want you to get the picture in your minds. It's not a picture of a beautiful, green, vibrant plant with full flower and leaf. It's a twig. Something that would only gain our attention because of all that it was lacking and not at all because it was beautiful or in any way attractive. In the 11th chapter of this book, Isaiah makes another similar observation, saying that the Messiah would spring forth as a branch from the stock of Jesse. It's interesting that he uses the name of Jesse in relation to the promised Messiah. Do you know why? Well, I want to tell you the line of Jesse was just another line in Israel until Almighty God supernaturally established the continuance of His covenant promise with Jesse's ruddy-faced young son, David. No eyes were on any of the sons of Jesse, especially the youngest, while looking searchingly for the noble qualities of a king. Isaiah says he has no form. Or comeliness when we see him, there is no beauty that we desire him. We're reminded again that God's ways are not man's ways. And this truth not only applies to Jesus Christ himself, who had no physical beauty about him, that people were attracted to him. He did not, like Saul, stand head and shoulders above the rest of the people. He was by all appearances plain. And the same truth applies to his kingdom when viewed by the eye of natural man. Here was the one who would enter his own holy city of Jerusalem, not upon the back of a thoroughbred stallion, but upon the back of a common donkey. Sitting, as it were, not upon the finest leather saddle imaginable, but upon the dirty and well-worn cloaks of his disciples. And his followers, well, they were all a far cry from the nobles that one would expect to surround the king of all kings. They were at times slow-witted, cowardly, 
even to the point of deserting their king. They were ordinary men. They were fishermen and tax collectors, average men. Yet they would go on by the power of Almighty God in the words of John Calvin to subdue kings and kingdoms with the sword of the word. Who can comprehend the glorious wisdom of God in the deliverance of his people? He was despised and rejected by men. And Isaiah says, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Men looked upon the Messiah and they scoffed at him. They saw his grief and his affliction as he carried our sickness and our sin and they hated him for his weakness. You notice the use of certain pronouns here. It's important to notice Isaiah is not standing back and pointing his finger at all of the foolish ones out there, the, the truly wicked ones around him or around those who would live to see the Messiah with their own eyes. He says, we despised. We hid our faces. We esteemed him not. He's most certainly including himself among the guilty. Isaiah declares here a universal judgment. No man can or will ever come to a human comprehension of Jesus Christ by his own fallen understanding. He'll never look upon Jesus and find some fleshly reason to esteem him highly. It's only through the eyes of faith revealing who Jesus Christ is by the power of the very Spirit of God that man can ever see past his apparent weakness, and even begin to behold his magnificent power. All of us are guilty of turning away and rejecting him if left to human reason. And so Isaiah numbers himself with the guilty that we're looking for the true power of God in the cheap, weak, tawdry, dim reflections of his power seen in fallen human manifestations or common, or concepts of supposed real power. All men are guilty, Isaiah included. Apart from the Spirit of God opening blind eyes, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Beloved, do you understand? Isaiah is not doing what we so often do. We often look around Christendom and we see the excuses for disciples of Christ that we have been surrounded by, those who are just so offensive to our precious Savior, those whose behavior is just so offensive by our own pharisaical standards. Those who just do not get it as well as we do. But considering the suffering of Christ, we see that there is no room For self-righteousness. As Isaiah says, we, we despised him. We rejected him. We all would have looked upon the smitten, wounded, afflicted Savior. And like Job's counselors, we probably would have assumed that he was in fact smitten and afflicted by God because of something that he must have done. 
And we all would have despised him for his suffering and even hated him for his apparent weakness. Then Isaiah lets us all in on the truth about the suffering Christ and why it was that the Son of God had to live a lifetime of suffering. And beloved, we need to consider it. Look at what he says. He was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was bruised. Why? For our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. Beloved, do you hear the word of God tonight? Do you want to know why it is that you should bow the knee to a suffering Savior like this one? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Because you and I were born in sin. Because of our father Adam and his fall in the garden, because you and I have actually sinned far too many times to count. Because you and I will continue to sin far more than the most righteous among us this evening would ever be wanting to admit. We are sinners. And our sin caused the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. He bore in his body the very wrath of God poured out upon our sin. He suffered himself, though sinless, the punishment meant for the sinfulness of his church. Do you hear the words of the prophet? His suffering is tied to our sin. This is the bittersweet part of the gospel. We must see the bitterness associated with our sin. Jesus Christ came and he suffered and he died and he arose to purchase your freedom from the bondage of sin. And that freedom was not free. It cost something. We can glimpse that cost when we consider the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. Our sin, our law-breaking, earned the penalty of God's wrath. The justice of God demanded that satisfaction must be made for our sin. And so Jesus Christ, the righteous, the innocent, stood in our place and he suffered the wrath of God, all the while remaining sinless in order to satisfy the justice of Almighty God. He received our due wrath in his body and soul. He suffered unthinkable anguish while he lived. Beloved, listen to me. No matter what you may think, your great contribution to Christianity or to this local body is, unless you, like Isaiah, realize that you are numbered among the transgressors, you will never appreciate the suffering of Jesus Christ. And though your mouth may vainly utter his praises, you will despise him for his weakness. Your great contribution to this equation, 
the thing that God in His mercy has asked you to bring to the table is your sin and your misery. Do you believe that? Or is it everyone else that fails Jesus? Isaiah knew why Jesus suffered. And he was crushed and yet overjoyed at the same time by that same truth. And he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of our sin is our own. We've inherited our sin nature through the fall. But let's face it, we all sin willingly and regularly. Do you see why I would say Isaiah's message is bittersweet? The iniquity that caused the suffering of Jesus is ours. The recognition of that ought to be enough to drive us all on our faces before Almighty God when we even begin to glimpse the offense that our sin is to the holiness of God. We ought to be like Isaiah, undone by the knowledge of what we truly are when standing in the presence of the holy. We ought to cry out to God through our tears for forgiveness. But by the grace of God, beloved, because He is indeed merciful and loving towards us, we are not left in the dirt. We are not left upon our faces soaking the ground with our tears, but our weary heads are graciously lifted up where we behold Jesus Christ, our Lord, suffering, being afflicted, enduring the cross and its shame for us. We are made aware that it's His great love for us that led Him to willingly endure a life of suffering To give life to the very ones who caused his pain. Beloved, I hope you get it. I pray that the Spirit of God would give all of us understanding. I pray that we will be people who are simultaneously grieving over our sin and yet rejoicing at the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. On our faces before God, Soaking the ground with our tears, yet rising up in obedience. With hearts overflowing with joy and praise for the man of sorrows. Who suffered the unthinkable peril of receiving upon his body the wrath of God. Even while we were dead in trespasses and sins. We didn't clean things up and then look to Jesus. He comes to us when we're dead in our trespasses and sins. He comes to us, beloved, even when we esteemed him not. That's what Isaiah says. This is what we confess when we talk in our creeds and our Heidelberg Catechism about the suffering of Jesus and why it happened. We echo the words of the prophet Isaiah, who was echoed again by the Apostle Paul. Question 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism explaining why we confess what we confess about the suffering of Jesus Christ. It asks this question. What do you understand by the word suffered? This is what it says. That all of the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Why? In order that by his suffering, 
as the only atoning sacrifice. He might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Jesus suffered to redeem you from the just deserts of your sin. I'm going to leave you with this parting thought tonight. I want to ask you, do you find yourself embarrassed or even hating the suffering of Jesus? Have you ever found yourself despising his weakness? If you do, I want you to ask yourself why he had to suffer. And pray that the Holy Spirit will give you eyes to see the reason and the strength to look through your tears and find promised rest for your soul. Do you think less of the people of God and their inadequacies than you ought to? Then I want you to ask yourself this evening why Jesus had to suffer. And I pray that you will see your own sin there causing his pain. Do you hold on to petty grudges against your brother or your sister in Christ this evening? And they're all petty. Then ask yourself why it was that Jesus had to suffer. And I pray that when you've seen the results of your offenses against the holiness of a God who loves you in spite of the grief and the pain that you and your sin have caused, that forgiving your brother and sister of their offense will be as easy as gaining just a little bit of perspective. Why did Jesus suffer? Because he paid the penalty that we in our sin have earned. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that that very question would cause humility to blossom in even the proudest of hearts this evening. That it will give us all new purpose to look forward to and to come together this Sunday morning and celebrate the glory of his blessed resurrection. Jesus came for this, to die and to rise and to give you life. We need to live in celebration of that truth. Amen? Let's pray.